Well, it was a it was a big week in in the news in a lot of ways. There were a lot of major headlines and and continue to be so. But one strange one that seemed to dominate the water cooler talk and the internet this week was the question: Is it blue and black or white and gold? Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've probably been living under a rock all week or have been cut off from the internet at least. Um, every major news outlet, all the web news resources I look at, every one of them had that as a headline this week. This dress, um, this mother of the bride dress in Scotland, and the photo was posted on the internet and social media with the caption, what color is this dress? And the internet just lit up with responses, millions and millions of views within hours of this picture being posted and people offering their strong opinions on the color of this dress. To some, it was obviously blue and black. And to others, it was obviously white and gold. See, we have strong opinions even in this room. Um, Nobody was neutral. Our house was divided on this issue, I can assure you. And the scientific community quickly chimed in and explained the phenomenon of this picture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go home and check it out. Um, But everybody was looking at the exact same photo of the same dress and yet seeing very different colors. Um, Some had eyes to see reality, my wife, uh, and others like myself saw an illusion and something less than reality. Well, this morning we're looking at a series of miracles in the book of 2 Kings. To some, they may look white and gold. They they, they look like just a good man doing good deeds for some people. But that is less than reality. That's less than what's really going on here. To others, and hopefully all of us by the end of this morning, this account looks very blue and black. It's a sovereign God powerfully working by showing compassion and meeting all kinds of needs for all kinds of people. It's God that we're beholding here. In looking at Elisha's life and ministry as we have been and will continue to do so, we need to, we need to see God. We've said this already, but we, this is reality. This is what we're really seeing. This is what this is recorded for us to see. We're to see the Lord in this text as a compassionate God. That that is good news for us, isn't it? That God is a God of compassion. We are recipients of God's unfathomable compassion. And if you don't get that, then you don't understand reality. If you're in Christ, you've received, you've been lavished, God's mercy has been lavished upon you. His kindness, His compassion, though you don't deserve it. And it's not that God is just compassionate in the New Testament or to Christians. He, and yet he's uncaring in the Old Testament. Some try to play off that dichotomy. He's the God of love in the New Testament. God of, God of justice in the Old Testament. No, he's the same God. He's immutable, unchanging in all of his attributes. The ladies looked at this even this week, I believe. And one of the ways God's constant compassion is shown, both in the Old and New Testaments, is in is through miracles. 
And that's what we have this morning. This morning we're looking at a section in 2 Kings that catalogs several miracles that God worked through the prophet Elisha. And these miracles do a couple of things. They further confirm Elisha's role as God's prophet, as the successor of Elijah. And yet they also, and, and primarily I would say, they throw the spotlight on the prophet's God. They teach us about God. And, and they'll do more than that, but that's what I want us to see first of all. So most of these miracles that Elisha performs by the power of God are, 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 are miracles that meet the needs of individuals. These are not just displays of power for power's sake. No, he's, these, these miracles meet real, tangible, complex, life-dominating needs, as we'll see. And just a couple other Quick statements, just by way of introduction. These miracles put the spotlight, as we've already said, on God's power and compassion and triumphing over many areas, over debt, over death, over drought, over disease and difficulty. And we'll see these. And then finally, I'll say, and we'll come back to this at the end, but the miracles performed by Elisha have striking similarities uh, with the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament. And so I'll come back to that. But let's get right into the, to the text. We've got a lot of ground to cover again. What do we learn about our compassionate God from these chapters? This is the first thing, is that God cares for the desperate. God cares for those who are just hanging on by their fingernails at the end of their rope. This is the first thing we see in this first miracle. Look in verse 1, chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now just stop, so that we have this widow. To be a widow in this time in the ancient world was extremely difficult, especially to be a young widow, as this woman probably was. In addition to just the immense sadness and grief of, of losing your husband, there's just the, the matter of physical survival was extremely difficult. Widows were very vulnerable. They had neither position nor power in the culture. They, 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 their ability to provide just for the basic needs of life was incredibly diminished, almost non-existent. And so there was, there was hardly a more difficult life than that of a widow in this time. Now, this particular, particular widow had been married to one of the sons of the prophets. You remember when we talked about... Elijah transferring his mantle to Elisha. There was that little school of prophets, those guys that followed Elijah around and learned from him. And so her husband had been one of these sons of the prophets, was with Elijah, now with Elisha. We don't know much about kind of the social living arrangements of this group, but at least we know that some were married, had children, and had Personal debts, as we'll even see. So this widow comes to Elisha, complete and utter desperation. And she has already lost her husband, and now we see she's about to lose her children. Verse, the end of verse 1. But the creditor has come to me to take my two children to be his slaves. So slavery in this time was the way... The debt was worked off. We see this regulated in Exodus chapter 21. The creditor is fully within his rights in doing this. This was, this was how debts were paid. It would be worked off or it would be released in the year of Jubilee. But, but 
that said, that is a small consolation for a mother's aching and anxious heart as she sees this man come to take her sons away to be slaves after she's lost her husband. You put yourself in her shoes. Verse 2, and Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? He can do nothing for the woman legally since the creditor is within his rights, but, but he can provide an alternative solution. So he says, tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So her only resource is a little oil, which was important for lighting, for cooking, important commodity. Verse 3, then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So this is, this is clearly a test of faith for this widow. One, just be by the number of vessels, get uh, gobs of vessels, which just doesn't even make sense. So, but she's believing the word of the prophet and also that she's going to act in, in the absence of the prophet behind closed doors. This is not going to be her trusting in Elisha. This is going to be a a demonstration of her confidence in Yahweh. And so she's doing it by herself. Verse 5. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And the oil stopped flowing. She has enough to fill every single jar she has. Verse 7, she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So the first thing, God meets this very private need in a very private way, but he allows this desperate widow to pay off her debts and to to, to keep her sons from going into slavery. One of the things that we see here, though, is this widow, again, not regarded as anything in the culture. And yet God regards her. God cares for her. No, no one is lower than God's compassion will stoop. No, no one. This uninfluential, unnoticed, unable widow is, is just the kind of person God loves to help. Nobody is beneath God's help and care. The almighty God, creator, sustainer of all things, cares for the lowliest of people. The covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he cares for this unnamed widow. And so that's that's great encouragement to us and a challenge to us. One, are you hanging on by your fingernails? Are are you are you desperate? Are you at the end of your rope? Are you just suffocating because of some just daunting circumstance in your life right now and you just don't know how you're going to go on? Is that true of you? Maybe it's a private private um, desperation but it's it's real listen you're just the type of person god has the help habit of helping um he cares for you he has not forgotten you hope is not out of reach for you and so i uh, will come back to, to that but second question would be are there people around you who are hanging on who are at the end of their rope uh, of course there are <laughs> I would just say, we, we have to be careful here in helping desperate people. One, the, the desperate need help, not a lecture. 
The desperate need hope, not shame. The desperate need compassion, not criticism. The desperate need action, not just platitudes. I say if there's people in your life who are here, like this widow, unable to not knowing how she's going to go on, God has you in that person's life for a reason, to help. And so... There's, there's a whole other sermon how to help, but I just say not helping is not an option. Second thing that we see about our compassionate God in this second miracle is that God cares for those who wet their pillows every night with tears. And we'll see what I mean by that. But this, the, the, the woman on the receiving end of the next really two miracles is at the complete opposite end of the social spectrum from the first woman. Totally upper percentage. She's a wealthy woman, the text says. Literally a great woman. She has standing. She has status in her community. In this village of Shunem. She and her husband, they live in this area where Elisha travels around, in and around frequently. And so on one occasion, the woman urges Elisha to come and to stay for a meal with her husband. She and her husband. And that kind gesture of hospitality it turns into a habit of hospitality and so the prophet she recognizes prophet as a holy man of god the text says and eventually she approaches her husband and makes a suggestion to him verse 10 she says let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed a table a chair and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us he can go in there he's basically saying let's let's build out a guest apartment in our basement which their their roof was our basement and um, and so he just one day that's repeated verse eight verse eleven verse eighteen but one day he sends his servant Gehazi to call the Shunammite to him verse twelve and he asks her how how can he repay her for all her trouble and all that she's done for him and all the kindness shown verse thirteen would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army oh. Elisha's not name-dropping there like, you know, I know friends in high places, and uh, I know the king, and I know the commander. And, uh, in fact, I've got their numbers right here on my phone if you want to see them. Uh, That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I have an opportunity to help you and, and, and to extend, to repay you for the kindness you've shown me. But the woman's response is an emphatic no. No, I, I'm not looking for reward. I'm not... Not interested in that. I dwell among my own people, she says. So she's saying, I'm content with my life. I, I have nothing, I need nothing from you, man of God. But, but you know what? Things aren't always as they seem, are they? I mean, that's true that here in this story, that's true in this room. And there are people sitting all around you that look polished and look prettied up and look like they have their act together. Everything's just firing on all cylinders and there are hidden hurts all around you in this room. Um, things aren't always as they appear. They, they, they may not have your struggles, so it doesn't look like they have struggles because they're not struggling financially as you are or relationally as you are or uh, educationally or socially or whatever realm is hard for you right now. They're not struggling in those ways, so we think they're okay. But that does not mean they're not just being suffocated by sorrows in secret. 
This woman's wealth, her status, it cannot shield her from just the raw hurts of life in a fallen world. So this secure, this self-confident woman, great woman, the text says, she has this secret heartbreak and it's exposed by one single observation by Gehazi. Gehazi says to Elisha, verse 14, she has no son. And her husband is old. She's barren. Infertility has, has, has been a heartbreak for many, many women. Some in this room, I know. But in this context, that grief is, is just compounded by the stigma of the culture, by her husband's advanced age, by... Just in that Hebrew culture, the deep desire to have a son, an heir to the family. And she can give her husband none. But this gracious, God-fearing lady, she's closed the door on hope. Though Elisha, led by God's Spirit, calls her back and he makes this incredible promise to her. Verse 16, about this time next year you shall embrace A son. And that sounds great. But that promise is too painful for her to even bear. To consider verse the end of verse 16. No, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Her longing for a child is is a hurt that's so deep. that, that, That it's a longing. It's too painful to even reopen the discussion. It's kind of the idea of this. Yet God graciously gives her that heart's desire, answers that hurt that she's experienced for years. In verse 17, but the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And they all lived happily ever after, right? No. We go from the sheer excitement of unexpected life to the horror of unexpected death in just a moment. You fast forward, the boy has grown to the age where he's out, able to be out in the field. His father is working in the field. One day he's out in the fields and he suddenly cries out, verse 19, Oh, my head, my head, this boy. The father gets one of his servants to take the child to his mother. In verse 20, when he had brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. Is there any loss harder than the loss of a child? Again, I I know some of you in this room, you know this personally, you know the pain of that loss. And and others, if you're parents, that is one of the greatest fears. It's the, the thought of losing a son or daughter death. Parents struggle to go on after this kind of thing. Marriages, even in our our own day, marriages tend to fall apart. The statistics uh, show that not many marriages survive the death of a child. But, But this woman, you think, the heartbreak of infertility, it gives way to an even more devastating heartbreak of death. Loss. But, she refuses to accept the finality of her son's death. And, 
at least not until the prophet who was responsible for the boy's life is spoken. So verse 21, and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may go quickly, that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? But but there's this urgency in her. She's determined to get to Elisha, the man of God, as quickly as possible. And she's going to keep the boy's death a secret until then. And so the journey to Carmel is about 25 miles. And as she gets close to Elisha in the vicinity, Elisha sees her coming. Isn't that the Shunammite woman? And he sends Gehazi after her and to greet her. And Gehazi stops her and politely asks, Is all well with you? Verse 26. Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? She gives just a canned answer. All is well. She's not interested in exchanging pleasantries with Gehazi. She wants to get to Elisha. And so she pushes past Gehazi and reaches Elisha. She throws herself on the ground, takes hold of his feet. Verse 27, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. I just this little side note here. I guess, but this is a, gives us a little window in what the prophetic role was like. In this time, Elisha is not able to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it and know what he wants to know when he wants to know it. God gives him that ability. He doesn't know why she's in distress. His miracle working power isn't from himself. His knowledge isn't from himself. He only knows what God tells him, uh, what God permits him to know. He only does what God uh, allows him to do. He only sees what God uh, permits him to see. And so this isn't Elisha the Magnificent. This is Elisha the servant, the prophet of of Yahweh. But Elisha's speech, he finally just spills out her agony. Verse 28, did I not ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? This is agony. I didn't have a son and, and I couldn't have a son and yet you gave me a son and then God took him away. But she didn't come all this way just to complain to Elisha. This is not the customer service department of the Lord. She she came to see her son restored to life. And she believed that God could do it. Maybe she'd heard about Elijah raising the, the widow of Zarephath's son, child. 1 Kings chapter 17. But Elisha responds. He responds. He sends Gehazi ahead with With his staff, and he tells Gehazi, lay the staff on the child's face. And and he says, even he says, make haste. Don't don't stop along the way and greet travelers as would be customary. You skip all of the protocol. You go right to her son where he's laying. But the grieving mother, that's not going to cut it. She's not going to accept anything less than Elisha himself, his presence with her son. And so verse 30, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, this oath formula, I will not leave you. Her faith in the Lord is expressed by this confidence in the Lord's prophet. So verse 30, she arose, so he arose and followed her. Well, Gehazi arrives, does what Elijah tells him to do. But his actions prove futile. The verse 31 says there was no sound or sign of life. He's dead. 
completely dead. So Elisha goes into the little apartment where he's slept and spent many nights and days and where she's laid this boy. He's alone and he spreads himself on the body of this boy. Verse 34, putting his mouth on his mouth, putting his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And when he does this, the boy's body begins to get warm. And Elisha steps away for a time, then comes again, stretches himself out on the boy again. Verse 35, and the child sneezed seven times, and he opened his eyes. Now, we're not told any explanation for Elisha's actions, why he did it in this way, or why there were seven sneezes. Was he allergic to that cloak that uh, he had? I don't know. Uh, The important thing about the sneezes, he's alive. Dead people don't sneeze. (laughs) He opens his eyes. He's, He's alive. And the miracle is not the result of Elisha's healing techniques. The miracle is, is, is representative of God, the giver of life, God's intervention in, the, in this boy, bringing him back to life. The Lord works through Elisha just as he had through Elijah to bring a dead boy back to life. It's God's doing. And then the climax of the story, verse 36, Elisha calls the woman, presents her with her living son. Now you just, you just try to imagine, imagine the emotions of this woman. But before she picks up her son, the text is very explicit on the timing here. She falls at Elisha's feet, bowing to the ground, verse 37. Then she picked up her son and went out. She... She, 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 she's just gratitude to the Lord and to this prophet of God for what he's done. She, before she even hugs him, she bows and thanks God. And don't you know that that story was repeated thousands of times around the dinner table for years to come? I mean, they probably couldn't look at that boy without tears welling up um, as they think of God's goodness to them. But God in his grace touched this heartbroken woman, overcoming her infertility and then overcoming and then raising her son from the dead back to life. God's compassion, this is the thing we see, God's compassion, it it reaches the hidden hurts of our lives. Stuff that's deep. And do you have those deep, hidden hurts in your life? Is there some secret sorrow that is that is the source of just unending tears for you. Psalm 6, we looked at this a couple years ago, I know, but Psalm 6, Psalmist, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Yet the psalm ends with this confidence in God. Even in your sorrows, you can know that God cares. He cares. Are there people around you with hidden heartbreaks? Of course there are. We all have them. Some of, some of the people around us, their heartbreaks are caused by us. You understand that? Maybe a spouse. Maybe a parent. The way a parent has treated a child or the way a child has rebelled against a parent. And there's just a sorrow. But there, there, are, there are opportunities we have to, to show the compassion and kindness of God to those hurting around us. 
Again, we'll try to tie all this up this, at the end if we have time. If not, we'll come back and do this next week. Some of the application. That... All right, well, after that experience, where do you go from there? <laughs> Raising from the dead. Anything else is going to be kind of anticlimactic from, from that point, isn't it? Um, but we press on. And, the, and then the next two miracles are food stories. So you're going to start getting hungry here, I realize, and, and I'm going to lose some of you. But um, and it brings us back into the context of the sons of the prophets, this prophet, prophetic school. And they've gathered together to meet with Elisha in the vicinity of Gilgal. You can look at that map we gave you a long time ago and see, these, see this location. But God, this is the thing we learn about our compassion to God, is that God cares for the health of the hungry. He cares for the health of the hungry. These prophets are almost certainly poor. And then we also are told that there's famine in the land, verse 38. So this is a subsistence level economy. Food was always precious and rare, but much more in a time of famine. Uh, Just living day to day and what they can find to eat for that day. And when Elisha gives some instruction, he tells the men to boil some stew. And so some of the prophets go into nearby fields to forage for food, anything that can be thrown into this pot of stew. And so one of them gathers some herbs and some, and, and he also has, finds a wild vine and he gets the gourds from this vine. And unaware of the toxic effects of these gourds, he puts them in the stew. He apparently was not a Boy Scout. He didn't, didn't know how to tell what was okay to eat, what wasn't. Um, But when the stew is first tasted, the tasters cry out in alarm. They say, there is death in the pot. Husbands, do not use that expression (laughs) this afternoon. (laughs) I don't care what it tastes like. That's not okay. Um, But there was something about the taste. It was probably a bitter taste. And these tasters, I mean, you just think of how they're living. They are. they're, They're just living off the land. And so there are people that... They don't understand these things, so they taste that. We, that is not okay to eat. Apparently, the tasters don't die, or Elisha doesn't intervene, or so he does nothing for them. But the big pot of stew is worthless. It's dangerous. It's, it can't be consumed. And again, food is so rare, so precious, especially in famine. So rather than dumping the soup out, Elisha commands some bystanders to bring some flour. And so in the text says, verse 41, And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Now, let's be clear. The flour didn't do anything. This was not magical flour. Um, this, is, this is a miracle from God. This is God's doing. God changing this. The chemistry of that death pot stew and making it health, making it good for them, salvaging a a meal gone bad. Um, And we go on to the next one. There's not many details given for the next miracle, but it's apparently during time of famine too. Verse 42, and a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. So, the offering of first fruits was to be given to the priests. That's how it was prescribed by God. Numbers 18.13, Deuteronomy 18.4 and 5. But in this day, there were, there were no authentic Aaronic priests in Israel. So, so this, man of, this man brought his offering to the Lord's servant, to Elisha. And Elisha says, you distribute it among the hundred men who are with me. 
Now, however generous the gift of food was, it wasn't enough to feed a group that size. And, and so Elisha, though, has a revelation from the Lord. Verse 43, they shall eat and have some left over. He's a man of faith. He acts on the word of God. So verse 44, so he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, we can't read that account and not think of the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000 by Jesus in, in the New Testament. Um, this is a smaller version of, of that kind of miracle. But, but this, is, this is what we see, what we learn of God's compassion. God's compassion extends even to the basic needs of life. He cares for us, even those most basic needs. Are you in need of life's basics? Now, most of us are, are probably not concerned about where, if we'll be able to eat our next meal. I realize that. We have real needs, but it's probably not that basic. Um, but, but I would say, whatever, even if, even if you are, even if you're struggling, you don't know how you're going to feed your family this week, maybe. Consider how God has been faithful to meet your needs in the past. That's one thing you can do. Just thank him for he's not allowed you to starve. He's, he's kept you alive. He's protected you through so much. And he's provided for your needs. Pray for daily bread. Jesus gave us this model. Give us this day, Father, our daily bread. Consider how God may be working even in your time of desperation, even in your time of lack. Thank God for the ways and the things he's teaching you about himself even when you when you are in want, a time of want, so those are some things. And but God is God will care for you. And there are those people around you who are lacking daily needs. And there are people around the world lacking daily needs. And how can we help? Again, there's so much, and we I just have to keep moving. But I just say a couple of things for us in our middle class suburbia, where we can easily become cynical. That's the first thing. Don't be a cynic. We're talking about hunger, poverty. Don't just retreat to cynicism and and start making little platitudes about why there are these things exist. Be be biblically minded when thinking about the poor and about hungry. Use you need discernment, but don't become cynical. Be involved, don't be passive. Do do what you can to help. I'll say especially help those of the household of faith when there are needs. I mean, it's, we just have reflexes to help. That's how it should be. And show up and meet needs, basic needs. All right, well, we move on. Um, not, no time to linger and check out the scenery too much here. We have a scene change again in chapter 5. We move from Israel now to Syria, from the Israelites to Syrian uh, commander. And this is the thing we'll learn in this in this chapter. God cares more for humble long shots than he does for greedy shoe-ins. Uh, we'll unpack that. So just write, fill in the blanks and we'll come back to that. And you'll see what I mean. Verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. He was a mighty man of valor. I mean, this is an impressive guy. I mean, right away in verse 1, we're we're kind of starstruck by this Naaman. His name means pleasantness. It's probably a reference to his personality. He's a likable guy. He has an impeccable reputation, a man of high valor. He's, he's, uh, he, but he's a pagan. 
He's a pagan. He's a Syrian. He, and, he, and yet he has this unusual relationship to the Lord in the sense that God has used him as an instrument in his hands to accomplish his purposes. By him, the Lord had given victory to Syria, the text says. Now, that doesn't mean he was conscious of God using him like he had availed himself to the Lord. That just means that, that God is the God of the nations. God moves people around. God accomplishes his purposes even among those who don't realize it. In spite of all of these attributes, Naaman has a problem, a big problem. He is a leper. Leprosy. Oh. Now that term, as we find it in Scripture, it, it, was a, it was a more broad term than we think of. We, Hansen's disease, of what we think of leprosy. Uh, but this covered a, a variety of skin diseases. Um, but nonetheless, it's an extremely serious condition. And, he, and what we find, the, the disease is progressive, and he's probably in the, he would be in the early stages of it because he's abil- he has the ability to move about in and, and, and public. But it's terminal. He, he's going to die from this. There's no cure for this disease. Most of all, and worst of all, the disease is isolating. It carries a stigma with it. It arouses fear in other people. It is, it is in their day and time, it was in their day and time, what, maybe what AIDS would be in many places in our day. And so serving in the home of Naaman, though, in God's providence, again, we see God. You see the blue and black here in the story. God is in charge. God is gracious. God is powerful. There's this little girl from the land of Israel. Now, he took her as a, as, as a slave, as a servant, when they had fought against Israel. He had taken this girl from her parents. And yet she is in this home of this general and Syrian general. And she is everything that Naaman isn't. She's a girl. That's obvious. She's a slave. She's a Hebrew. She's a believer in Yahweh. She's probably in her early teens. And, and she learns of her master's illness and she has compassion on him. And, and she also has this confidence in, in the Lord and in God's prophet. So verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. She believes God's ability to do that. Well, desperately sick people are willing to do desperate things. And so just on the basis of that little servant girl's comment, Naaman approaches the king of Syria and and the king apparently already knows of his condition. And, and, and the king values Naaman enough that he approves and authorizes an expedition. And he goes as far as as writing and and sending a letter to the king of Israel. Verse five. So Naaman sets out, he's equipped with, with two things that will assure him of his healing. One, first thing, he has enough money to buy what he wants from God. Yeah, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, but this is how he's thinking. He took ten talents of silver, about 750 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, about 150 pounds, and ten changes of clothing. A huge amount of money. He can hire the prophet to do what 
He wants the prophet to do. Second, he, he has power and position. He has the king's letter, and kings get what they want generally. So verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When the letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now the king, we don't know which, the king is not named here, but the king receives this letter and he just comes unglued. (laughs) The last thing that he would think of is calling on a prophet of the Lord, the king of Israel. Last thing he would think of. All he can read in this letter is a pretense for war. You see it in verse 7, end of verse 7. See now, he is seeking a quarrel with me. This is, there's funny business going on here. He's just trying to pick a fight. He's ready to go to battle. And this is part of the scheme. He, he's totally out of touch with what God is doing. He's blind to the hand of God that, that, that's, that's working. Elisha, on the other hand, knows God. He knows God's purposes. And what the king cannot do, he can. The king said, verse 7, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But he tells the king, he says, send Naaman to me. And Naaman comes with his horses and chariots, the text says. Now, Samaria was not a large city. It would be kind of like the presidential motorcade coming in, into Fayetteville or Sonoya or something like that. I mean, you know, just it would be obvious. All these horses, all these chariots with the Syrian general. And Naaman and his entourage, they stop at the door of Elisha's house. But he doesn't get down from his chariot. A great man like him deserves deference and respect. And so Elisha, though, he doesn't go out to meet him. He just sends a messenger. He doesn't go himself. And he tells through the messenger, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, then your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Verse 10. Well, Naaman is ticked at that. He's are you kidding me? He's, he's furious. He, he pulls away from the prophet's house. He vents his anger to his men. Verse 11. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. He's saying, doesn't this guy know who I am? Doesn't he know how important I am? I, he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And not only that, it's a matter of national pride. Verse 12, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And he has a point. I mean, the muddy, little muddy, unimpressive Jordan River. Naaman is, he's a proud pagan. And he wants... He, he knows what he wants from this other God of Israel, and he thinks he can buy it. He, he thinks dealing with Yahweh is just like striking a little business deal. And so the thought that somehow his healing would be dependent upon submitting to what Yahweh says on his terms alone, it doesn't even occur to him. It just, this, sounds, this sounds too simple. It sounds too silly. Washing the Jordan seven times. Kidding me? Now, fortunately, Naaman's men, they read him like a book. And, and, they, and they challenge his response. Verse 13, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? That's it? I mean, they're saying, what do you have to lose but a little bit of pride? And the words pierce the general's armor. 
And so he travels 25 miles to the river, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He follows the word of God's, the word of God's prophet, and he gets the healing he longed for. And again, you just imagine this, to put yourself in this man's shoes. Wow. Well, he decides not to go back to Damascus immediately and show off his new baby face. He decides to return and go back to the prophet in Samaria. And look what he has this new relation to the Lord. And he makes this grand confession. Verse 15. I know that there is no God in all the earth but the Lord, but, but in Israel. And he's not just saying the right thing. A few moments later, he shows this transformed view of reality. Verse 17. Your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. That's the language of conversion. He, he believes Yahweh. He's, his confidence is in the Lord alone now. And he has a new relationship to God's prophet. He, before he stormed out in fury because Elisha wouldn't, wouldn't show deference to him. Now he calls himself this formerly arrogant general. He says, he says I'm your servant. He says that to Elisha. So one of the things we see, God's compassion here, it crosses borders, spills over the banks of Israel. Naaman was this proud pagan long shot. He was an enemy of God, enemy of God's people. He had fought against Israel. He had taken a girl as a servant in his house. Yet God's grace was sufficient to meet him and totally transform him. An idol worshiper turned Yahweh worshiper. And isn't that a great hope to us in missions and evangelism? I mean, beyond that, we ourselves are a product of God's compassion crossing borders. We are the ends of the earth, folks. We are not the new Israel. We, 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 are, we are the ends of the earth. How, how can we not believe that God is willing to then transform sinners around the globe and across the street from you? If he saved us and changed us. Even long shots, long shots like us, can be saved. God's compassion reaches us. And so, do we have compassion like God does? Or do we have these preconceived ideas of, of who is more likely to trust in Christ than others? That's faulty thinking. That's white gold thinking. We need blue-black reality. God's power, transforming power. To cross borders and under under nothing can limit to the, the reach of his grace. Well, Naaman offers a gift to express his appreciation, but Elisha rejects it. You see this? This is a, this is about God. This is about God's glory. It's not about receiving anything in return. Verse sixteen: As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman has. Naaman has this new set of dirt, as much soil as I can fit on two mules to carry back with me to Syria. And, and I realize his theology is a little immature at this point. But, but what he's saying, I, I want to build an altar on the soil from God's land. And I want to worship the Lord there. It's commendable. He he's wants to honor the Lord. That desire is there in him. And yet he has this sensitivity to his responsibilities as the commander of the army of Syria. 
He's the right-hand man to the king of Syria. He, there are going to be ceremonial occasions when the king is going to want him to accompany him into the pagan temple of their god, the Syrian god Ramon. And he recognizes that that is not appropriate. So he says, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he repeats it two times, just showing this agony in his soul over this. He's saying, I'll bow alongside the king, but my heart is not going to be given to any king but the Lord. That's what he's saying. I'll be there out of the loyalty to my, to my boss, but, but I will not be loyal to my boss's God. And so this long shot believes the Lord, receives God's care and compassion, but there's a flip side. The shoe-in shoe ignores God's word and receives God's discipline. I've got to be quick here. But, but let me just say, just the application. It's possible to be close to God's word and God's work and God's people and yet be far from God's heart. That is a warning for us, folks. That is a warning for this pastor. I, we can be in around all over whatever preposition you want to say and how we relate to the things of God and yet be far from Really knowing the heart of God and His compassion. Because what we find here is Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he watches Naaman leave. And all he sees as Naaman goes away is a lost opportunity for personal gain. He's blind to the glory of God that's just taken place. His greed, it stands in stark contrast to both Naaman's, generosity, Naaman's gratitude and Elisha's generosity here. But Gehazi termin, determines to seize this opportunity for himself. So his plan is simple and true. He hustles after Naaman. He stops him in the road. He catches him. He spins this story in Elisha's name. Verse 22. My master has sent me to say they have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Two men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Shrewd. That's a plausible story. It's, it's a limited request. He doesn't ask for everything that he offered. He, he, so he's, he's shrewd. And, and you see the transformation of Naaman even though here in the story. He, he, he's willing to dismount and he greets the servant of Elisha, Gehazi. And, and, and again, you see that transformation in his life. And he's, he's willing to give more than Gehazi even asks for. He says, I'll send two servants to help carry it with you. Verse 24, and when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in, a, in the house, in his house, and he sent them in away, and they departed. And so as Naaman's servants are headed back to Syria, Gehazi sits there and thinks, I have done it. I have permitted the, committed the perfect crime. There is not a single soul in Israel who's going to know about this. There's no way. And then he runs into Elisha. <laughs> By divine revelation, Elisha knows everything. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? You kids can relate to these kind of questions, can't you? I remember these. Where, where, where have you been, Justin? Oh, I didn't want to hear that. And he said, Your servant went nowhere. He lies. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments? And he goes on. Elisha makes it clear to Gehazi that this, this, this disrespect for the word of God has been 
has been found out. This greed. It's, it's futile to try and deceive a man who's, giving direct, who's, who's receiving direct revelation from God. Just file that away. Um, even more, it's, it's the glory of God that's being tarnished here. To, catch, to, to cash in on an act of God is just reprehensible. And Gehazi will pay for this. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. And as the story comes to an end, Naaman and Gehazi have basically traded places. This pagan who humbled himself to submit to God's word through the prophet found healing. And yet the servant of the prophet of the Lord who disrespected God's word has now tasted the bitterness of God's discipline. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. The things we see is God's grace is both priceless, yet it's free. And Naaman tried to buy God's care. Gehazi tried to profit from it. But God's compassion, God's mercy, His grace, it's, it's free. It's priceless, but free. Don't think that you can make God your debtor. God's grace is available to all who come to Him in humble faith and believing His Word, not to those who try to buy it or earn it. Now, I'm going to just hold off on the last scene. We've got, we want to sing. We've got um, an opportunity for, for, to show compassion that we want to give uh, time to, to talk about. There will be an announcement about the Walk for Life in just a moment. And uh, so I, I, I want to, Ms. Bernice, are you here? All right, good deal. All right, just wanted to make sure I didn't see you. Um, let me just say, one of the things we see, we admire Elisha, don't we? I mean, I, I do. I, I, I thank God. I mean, it's not a bad thing to thank God for, for men of God and women of God. Rejoice. I mean, he speaks the truth in an evil day. He cares for a widow in her need. He provides for the child of a barren woman. He raises the dead. He feeds the crowd. He shows mercy to this Gentile commander. But this compassionate prophet... His life, it points us beyond himself. And, and don't, don't think that that's not, that's not what Kings is doing here. It's, it's pushing us to a greater king, to a greater prophet. It's pushing us to Jesus. Jesus boldly preached the truth in a hostile world. Jesus cared for widows, outcasts, nobodies. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus fed the multitudes. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus healed the Roman centurion's servant. Jesus had command over water like we're going to see in the story next week. He walked on it, calm storming seas. He, he takes care of debts. He leads people out of bondage, out of slavery. But he not only heals, healed leprosy, he, he took the plight of the leper himself. He, he, as Hebrews says, he, he went outside the gate. He suffered outside the camp. He took the place of the leper. He doesn't just like a doctor who cuts the cancer out of you. He says, no, I'm going to take that tumor for myself. I'm going to let it kill me in your place. And yet I'm going to come out clean and alive. This is his substitution. This is more than just him doing things for us. It's what he did in our place. We have a greater prophet, a greater king. I just say, let that... Let that compassion of our God, let that just come over you. That compassion does not stop the moment you're saved. It's not like he just has compassion until we, until we trust him and then you're on your own, kid. 
That's not it. No, he continues to care for you. He meets your needs. He, he has deep abiding love in his heart for you. He's for you. Even when he seems distant from you, he is not. That is, that is not reality. And then there's those who have received such compassion. Show it. Show it, folks. We are never more like Jesus than when we show compassion like Jesus. Jesus looked at that unredeemed, proud, arrogant, rich young ruler, the kind that we just love to kick and and you know tweet about and, and say sarcastic comments. What did Jesus He loved him. Even in his unredeemed state. He looked on Jerusalem and the 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 People and lost sheep without a shepherd. He, see, he wept over them. Do you do you have compassion? I'm thinking particularly on the lost sinners. Has your heart grown callous? Have you forgotten the the amazing grace that is yours that you did not deserve and could not earn, that it, but yet God graciously gave you? Let it let your heart be tenderized again. Love people, love the household of faith, love and show compassion for those outside. Walk as he walked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care about every situation in our lives, the big stuff and the small stuff, the public stuff and the private stuff. You, you know it all. You, you care for it all. And, and we thank you that we can come boldly to the throne of grace at all times. And so teach us, Lord, to come on the basis of of what you've shown us in your word and to come with humility about who we are and yet confidence about who you are. Lord, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your great grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.